The painting of the Kickapoo's visit to Maximilian was painted by Jean-Adolphe Bousset sometime between 1865 and 1867. It shows an intriguing moment during the brief French occupation of Mexico when Ferdinand Maximilian, who was the short-lived appointed emperor of Mexico, was paid a visit by members of the Kickapoo tribe. The Kickapoos were a group of indigenous people that initially were established in the New Mexico area. After the Civil War, they were kicked out. Actually, the Kickapoo people had first been met by French explorers in the Great Lakes region in the 1640s. But after two centuries of white expansion across North America, they were forced to cross into Mexican territory and were in the process of seeking permission, oddly enough, to be there from the newly imposed French leader in Mexico City. What I see in this painting is that for me, other than the indigenous people, nothing else represents Mexico. I see Europe. I think for someone who is looking at this paint and you, if you ask, where is this happening? I would say this is happening in Europe. We look at the frames, we look at the golden framing on the paintings, we look at the carpet, the way people are dressed. Uh, everybody's white. <laughs> The white people are presumably the family and royal associates of Ferdinand Maximilian, the Austrian-born emperor who was trying to rule Mexico at the time, in the mid-1860s. This was after Spain, Britain, and France had jointly decided to invade Mexico over an issue of unpaid debts. French forces managed to push out Benito Juarez's government, and France's Napoleon III asked Maximilian, who was the younger brother of the emperor of Austria, to take charge. I look at Maximilian, and he just looks like he's thinking, holy hell. <laughs> That's Susan Vogel. Maximilian had come from European privileged royalty, so one can only imagine his surprise at meeting this colorful band of indigenous people, all of them seemingly dressed in their best native garments, complete with colorful pluming feathers on their heads. Nonetheless, Maximilian later described them in a letter as heathen Indians. And I just see him as like, I kind of frozen, just standing there like, what? Trying to figure this out. For some background, Maximilian was brought to power partially through the help of a group of conservative Mexican monarchists. A Mexican delegation comes to him and, and urges him to, that Mexico wants him. And he still wasn't convinced. And he said, well, I want, the Mex I want to see a vote. You know, he was very much an a proponent of democracy and had really good intentions. And so they brought him back a vote. And they said, they voted for you. But mo a lot of this voting, or the reason that, that you know, he was, had won, or he had, been, um, he had been asked to come, was based on fraudulent or forced voting. But he came with really good intentions to Mexico. Good intentions or not, Maximilian was challenged by a fierce insurgency of liberal Mexican reformists who wanted him and his European monarchists to get out. The liberals, led by Benito Juarez, eventually managed to overthrow Maximilian and execute him. But as for the Kickapoo people in Bousset's painting, they are shown in a tenuous position at best. This group of indigenous people are the ones who are coming to Mexico to be recognized, to be acknowledged, when to me is it's a country of mostly indigenous people or mestizos, and they are the ones who have to be asking for permission to come to these places. So it's, it's very powerful.
Well, this is Nuevas Voces, part 10. In this podcast, we talk about Mexico's history through its art. And in this episode, we're not going to be talking so much about that short-lived European takeover of Mexico. And we're really not going to be talking about the Kickapoo. But rather, we'll be examining this complicated social and racial dynamic that Jean-Adolphe Bousset's painting evokes. That is, the feeling of being a foreigner in one's own land. Here is Luis Lopez and his impression. Um, so one thing that I find interesting about this piece, and most pieces where you find some kind of meeting or some kind of compromise between two groups, uh, it's almost always the indigenous group or that that is being oppressed that is going 90% of the way, right? Because they're meeting, but look at that room. It's, it's obviously not the indigenous people's space, right? And so at that point, I asked myself, when they did meet, when they had these conversations, how much leverage did each group have? and coming to some kind of agreement, right? Um, and so that's just immediately what I think when I see this piece. I just, I see this indigenous group, the Kickapoo, completely out of their element, but willing to go into this unknown, uncomfortable space to, to be recognized, to be seen, to be heard, to have a voice. I should note here that today there are several independently recognized Kickapoo tribes living in Oklahoma, Texas, and northern Mexico. And interestingly, they are still considered a semi-nomadic tribe. Both Mexico and the United States have informally granted the Kickapoos the privilege to seek employment in both countries. In a sense, they have dual citizenship. For me, it's really interesting to be able to um, see kind of the, like how I feel like sometimes um, being in a place, right? Um, being invited to a space that's your home, but not actually be recognized in your own home. This is Syriac Alvarez. She's a dreamer, a DACA recipient, living in Utah like the Kickapoo, trying to be recognized as a group of indigenous people that um, deserve to be there, um, yet are not actually given that right or not actually recognized. Syriac is one of nearly 690,000 DACA recipients living in the U.S. DACA, of course, is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that was created under the Obama administration as a response to congressional inaction to address legal immigration reform. As a DACA recipient, as someone who is an undocumented immigrant who's grown up here um, in the United States, I kind of feel that same way sometimes where even though this is my home, even though I've lived here for, the, for almost two, um, 20 years, um, it's, I still am not recognized, right, for being a part of this community. Um, and the dichotomy, um, like... Um, they've said is very interesting to see just how different their lives um, are and how separated um, they are from each other, not really understanding um, one another. It's entirely possible that you, the listener, have never felt the sensation of being a stranger in your own land. Maybe you have. It's a feeling where you both belong but don't belong at the same time. I can't honestly say it's a condition that I've given much thought to until recently, until I've learned more about the legal dilemma for Dreamers and DACA recipients in our country. I wanted to learn more about Syriac's story. So my name is Syriac Alvarez, and I was born in Cuernavaca, Morelos, Mexico. I immigrated with my family when I was five years old. Um, that was back in 2001, and I've grown up here in Salt Lake City, um, Utah, ever since I... Um, graduated high school with senior class president in 2013 and just recently this May I graduated from the University of Utah um, with a bachelor's degree in political science and sociology and 
I am a DACA recipient. I received my DACA permit at the end of my senior year, uh, right when it was kind of important to be able to start working, um, have a license. And so for the past five years, I've been able to um, use my DACA to go to school, um, hold a job, buy my first car. Um, and so being able to do that really um, gave me a positive view about my, my life because before then I wasn't really sure about what would be next, um, just hoping that something um, would happen. And so now um, with the end of DACA, it's been a little bit worrisome just because I have about 600 days left on my DACA permit and it's really difficult to plan a life, plan the rest of your life when only 600 days are um, actually secured. And so for the past couple of years, I've also been um, really involved in trying to organize and trying to fight for undocumented immigrants, especially um, DACA recipients and young um, undocumented immigrants. Yeah, obviously, yeah, DACA is a very timely and relevant issue. You know, we're hearing about it a lot almost every day right now uh, in, in the news. Um, and, you know, my, I, I think... I understand that, you know, DACA was really the result of inaction by Congress, right? Not being able to pass any sort of immig mm -hmm. immigration reform act. And it was just done because, you know, we got to do something um, by the previous administration. And it's become a very, unfortunately, very political issue. But, um, but, but, but I think it's important for people listening, as you were describing, that it gave you an opportunity along with, I don't know how many other... It's about 800,000 yeah. 800, <laughs> people in this country, an opportunity to really, um, you know, have a life and be able to um, make the most of your opportunities here. And, and I, can you maybe talk about that a little more about the, the, the opportunities it gave you? Um, any other thoughts, I guess? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So DACA is a worker's permit and deferred deportation for two years. So you reapply every two years, pay $495, go through background check, uh, extensive background check. And what I was able to do was get my first job. I first worked at a restaurant and saved up enough money to pay for my own tuition because undocumented students can't receive federal financial aid. So FAFSA isn't allowed um, here in the state of Utah. In all states, I know there's a couple of states that have their own version of FAFSA. But here in Utah, um, I was allowed in-state tuition, so I was able to pay the same amount as other um, Utah residents. But even then, it was still a lot of money because scholarships are really scarce for undocumented students. So I was able to save up money and pay for my pay my way through school. And um, because of that, I was also able to save up to buy my first car. And because I had DACA, I was able to do internships. So I interned in Washington, D.C. for a while. I did an internship here um, in Utah with Comunidades Unidas, a local nonprofit that empowers Latino um, communities. And because of DACA, I was also able to graduate from the University of Utah and get a job after um, because before then people were able to graduate but not really work um, because they weren't able to work legally. So being able to have DACA gave me an opportunity to not only go to school and not only receive an ed a higher education, uh, but then use um, my degree to help my community. Mm. Great. Um, I, I eventually do want to bring this back to some of the work we're talking about. But um, one, one last question, because I think it's important to talk about what, what kind of misconceptions commonly do you perhaps encounter about DACA um, or DREAMers that you, maybe you encounter in this community that you feel like it's important to address, maybe common questions or misconceptions that you encounter? 
Yeah, I think a lot of the times people think that DACA has been amnesty when when it's nothing close to it. Um, I think people really misunderstand exactly what DACA is, that it's only a worker's permit and a deferred deportation. So every two years, your deportation, right, you don't, um, it's deferred um, and it's not any pathway to citizenship. It's not any way to fix your status. It's just a worker's permit. Um, it's not even a lawful presence in the U.S. It's only something that allows you to work here legally um, and come out of the shadows and be able to say, I want to do things right. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. And because it's only a worker's permit, we aren't. We still can't qualify for any of the federal um, aid, such as Medicaid, Medicare, um, FAFSA, all of those government programs that people think that we use or take, um, we still aren't allowed to use them. So I guess the misconception that we're taking things away from American citizens um, is always something that uh, is really um, funny to me just because we still can't um, do that. We can't um, qualify for any of the benefits, yet still um, we are still going to school, we're still contributing to our communities um, despite all of the obstacles and despite not being able to qualify for a lot of these things. I wonder if part of the reason so many Americans lack empathy for undocumented immigrants is that many of us no longer relate to the immigrant experience. Even if we can intellectually admit that we exist in this country only because someone in our family line at some point in the distant past arrived in this country without citizenship, we don't have our great-grandparents around anymore to tell us what that was like. It's hard to fully appreciate. But indeed, each one of us, with the exception of Native Americans, is connected to an immigrant story. So my family history um, goes back, I guess, to my grandfather, who was actually a bracero, um, that he was the first uh, one to come to what is now the United States uh, to work and put food on American tables, uh, then sending money back home. Um, due, to, due to that, uh, my uncles uh, came to the United States, and my dad is actually the youngest. Uh, we come from Montescovelo, Zacatecas, and Huacar, Jalisco. Um, and so he came to the United States because there wasn't any opportunity to work, uh, education. He went to the sixth grade and then started shining shoes and selling fruit. And, um, you know, with you know eight, nine brothers and sisters, there's only so much you can do in that town. And, and resources, I mean, just... I mean, he, he talks about eating, uh, you know, tacos de sal or tacos de con salsa y chile, like that's it. And so um, that was his, his choice for coming to the United States. And he had, you know, because of my grandfather, knew that there's work and his brothers. On my mom's side, uh, we come from Michoacan. Um, she came about four years old to the United States. And then at that point, my grandmother uh, started working two, three jobs. And, and my mom uh, basically uh, raised her sisters, uh, went to high school, and then had to start working at a jewel refinery. Uh, to help my grandmother pay the bills. And so that's kind of how we ended up in, the, in what's now the United States. Uh, but because of their experiences, uh, they really pushed education, which being born in the U.S., uh, I had that opportunity now, which wasn't even an option for them. Uh, and then going to school, now actually I could choose what I wanted to do for work, right, versus uh, having to, to do what I, I mean, finding something, right, finding a way to, to, to get by. And so uh, that's kind of how we ended up here. And, again, it was this opportunity uh, very low resources back in Mexico, and there weren't options to, to move up or to, to improve your living conditions, and so that's what drew them to, to the U.S. Here's Susan Vogel. 
Susan, any thoughts? Well, my family came here for many of the same reasons. <laughs> um, from Norway, 1880, a third of the population of Norway came to the U.S. because people had nothing to eat. So if you, it's interesting because I just went there this year and I hadn't really explored this history. But if you go to the, into the museums, most of the art from the late 1800s through the early 1900s is the sorrow of having your family have left, news coming back of terrible things happening. Um, so a lot of the paintings are like the the old, you know, sending the sun off on the ship or bad news from coming, you know, in the letter from on the ship. So at that point, um, people had farms. My family had a farm. It, most of these farms had been in the family for, well, right now it's been 10 generations. They have Viking burial mounds on the farms. And uh, at a certain point, there was no food and people were making bread out of tree bark. And the oldest child is the one who would inherit. So the oldest child, whether male or female, interestingly, would stay on the farm. All the other kids, and they usually had lots of kids because they were farmers and they needed the, the manpower and woman power. But the rest of the kids left, you know, got on ships, came to the U.S. because they had a relative. You know, it's always a and, – and interestingly, they would change their name to the name of the relative. So doing family histories is pretty hard. But it was the same reason. They lived in um, sod huts in the Midwest and continued – you know, I always joke like, okay, they had a terrible life in a harsh climate in Norway, and they came to the U.S. for a better life, which was a terrible life in a harsh climate in Minnesota or North Dakota. So they continued to farm. They did get land if they farmed it. And they created, they built churches. These farms and churches look exactly as they do in Norway. And um, and then my grandmother, they grew up on a farm wearing um, underwear made out of flour sacks. And the only toys she had were little rocks. So there'd be a rock for the cow, a rock for the pig, and a rock for the chicken. And she said, N enough of the farming. I'm not going to marry a farmer. So that was a big thing for her. She married a truck driver. And then my mom got the heck out of that little town and got an education and went to Chicago and, you know. So, yeah, so kind of the same stories. You can't feed your family. You're going to do what you need to do, right? Yeah. And come here with a great, as you were saying, come here with a sense that I've put the problems behind me. I've put the corrupt governments behind me. I believe in the system here. And a, and a great determination and desire to be part of the system here and to make it fulfill your belief that it's the best system. And that's what I, I'm so amazed when we have done classes at like Horizonte School and have taught, you know, 80 immigrants and refugees. And they all say, this is the best country in the world. This is the best, we have the best systems here. We believe in it. We believe in our, our country. We believe in justice. We want to be a part of it. And uh, that's pretty amazing to have so many people here who believe in our country and who will fight for it and be, become educated to participate in it. To be quite honest, I don't know a lot about where my family line comes from, specifically in Europe. It's something that I regret and something I want to learn more about. But frankly, it's not something that I think about much every day. And speaking as a privileged white American whose distant relatives likely arrived in this country from Europe sometime in the late 1700s or early 1800s, I don't feel any familial connection to any other country. 
Here's more from our conversation. I think that there's that element of sort of losing connection with the immigrant experience of your ancestors in this country that can lead to sort of this lack of empathy. Right. Sort of not recognizing the experience of immigrants here in our modern period because you, we are so disconnected by several generations or the cultural lack of telling these stories uh, to um, within our families about what it was like to be an immigrant. I think that exists in, in some Mormon households because mm-hmm. they have a fairly recent memory, even in the last 100, 150 years, of what it was like to be persecuted and also like what it was like to have to leave your home and find a place that you'd feel safer um, and that exists, and I think that, and that shows in, in sort of the reaction of in, in some Mormon um, families to the persecution that we see today of refugees and immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think within with a lot of American households, there's that lack of connection and unfortunately lack of empathy, and so. You but know, you might, but at some point, you might, especially with your child, you might be more interested in finding out. I mean, I never, I didn't know anything about Norway, nothing, until uh, my mother started having, not remembering too much in the, in the current <laughs> situation, but remembering things from her childhood, mm-hmm. and um, you know, in her generation, they were, the parents did not speak their native language to their children. My mom remembers um, hearing prayers and swearing in Norwegian, and that was it. But the but but and even growing up um, here, you know, the kids who spoke another language were sort of shunned. It's like you need to learn English right now. They would give them like a year to learn English, and so we grew up with that being the distant past and putting it behind us and not really very interested in it. Again, as you mentioned, Mormons tend to be more interested in their heritage and genealogy. Maybe that's why Utah tends, I believe, to have more compassion towards immigrants and refugees than other places. But um, Mexico is so close, and it's a lot easier to to be connected. Um, even though my daughter is half Mexican, I had to work really, really hard to get her to stay connected. And her dad's generation, um, when you know, her dad was a, an immigrant from Mexico— in, in his family, if you gave up your Mexican citizenship, because there was no dual citizenship, if you became a U.S. citizen, you were a traitor. And I remember going back to Mexico, and his cousins would be so angry with him and, and um, start tequila contest to show, you know, you think you're still Mexican? Prove it. You know, you have a U.S. passport. And so that was considered a real, you know, being a traitor. Um, so I think we have suffered, Ross, because we've not been able to maintain these connections. Um, and I think we kind of grew up in the sense of our sea to shining sea manifest destiny world. And very much like, hey, we're, we're Americans, meaning U.S., you know, we're part of the U.S., and our identity is that this is all what we're, this is what we're entitled to. And we have forgotten that we came from some pretty desperate situations as well. And what, you know, and then a lot of us, our parents are of the silent generation where they don't talk about struggles. So I think you, I think we, who've grown up here with just a vague sense of our own history, have really, you know, we've we've missed out on a lot. And maybe there's some jealousy of people who come here they live here. They celebrate the cultures they came from. They have a rich life, rich cultural life. And then what do what do we have? You know, I grew up here thinking 
okay, our identity was Mormon pioneer identity because that's what we were taught in schools. We were taught in schools that Utah's history started in 1847, and it was about the Mormon pioneers, and we have our parade about the Mormon pioneers. But, um, and that was like our identity. Well, it wasn't mine, and I didn't know what mine was because I didn't even start exploring it until about a year ago. <laughs> so I think maybe what we can learn is that all, you know, where we came from and the struggles of, of the past are something that enrich our life, enrich our experience, and give us compassion for everybody else because we're almost all in the same boat. And the more we see that, the more we understand that um, we all have a common background in history and purpose and role here. De la Sierra Morena, cielito lindo viene bajando. Un par de ojitos negros, cielito lindo de Well, it is amazing to see where conversations about art and history will take you. You can see an image of John Adolph Busse's Kickapoo's visit to Maximilian on the webpage for this podcast, artistmexut.org. There you can also see some photographic portraits of members of the Kickapoo tribe that were taken during their short stay in Mexico City in 1865. And related to our discussion in this episode, you can find some resources to learn more about Dreamers and DACA recipients living here in Utah. Thanks to Luis Lopez, Syriac Alvarez, Fanny Blauer, and Susan Vogel for making this important dialogue possible. Music you heard in this episode comes from Rafael Gayoso, Paco de Lucia, Antonio Pinto, Al Cayoloya, Antonio Reyes, and Craig Duncan. If you want to share your own thoughts on any of the topics we discussed in this episode, we want to hear from you. You can visit our website or the Artist in Mexico and Utah Facebook site to make a comment there. This podcast is made possible by a grant from Utah Humanities. Thanks to KCPW for the studio space. This is Nuevas Voces. I'm Ross Chambliss. Ese lunar que tienes, cielito lindo junto a la boca. No se lo a nadie cielito lindo que a mí me toca ese lunar que tiene cielito lindo junto a la boca no se lo des a nadie Cielito lindo que a mí me toca Ay, 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 ay Canta y no llores Porque cantando se alegra Cielito lindo los corazones Ay, 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 ay 
los corazones.